The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to learn more about stocks and the week ahead in the market. My guest today is Ben Levison, Barron's Deputy Editor and Markets Editor, and author of our weekly trader column. Welcome, Ben. It's a miserable day in the markets, and hopefully you can tell us why. Huh. I wish I knew. Um, no, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's one of those days where if you're looking for an event, um, there really isn't one. There's nothing that's changed in, let's say, Ukraine with uh, Russia's invasion. Um, you know, the good news out of there was good news out of France in the election there because uh, Macron seemed to uh, win by a greater margin than had been expected over Le Pen. Um, and oil prices are falling. So these are the things that people were looking at as possible risks that uh, aren't risks today. Um, the one thing that I would point to is that you have the 10 year yield and that just keeps going up. Um on the, the ten-year Treasury yield, and I, I think that is is at I think two point seven seven ish right now. It's been close to two point eight. Um, that's and, where I wanted to go with you, actually. Yeah, and, and so. I think that's the that's the thing that it, uh, traders are are focusing on right now. I think if we had to point to something, that would be why. And the evidence is in the disparity in the indexes. The Dow is down only about half a percentage point, but the Nasdaq is down one point two percent. And the Nasdaq always does worse when rates are rising it's full of growth stocks yes it does so the 10-year is yielding it was almost 2.8 percent this morning that's up from 1.6 percent at the start of the year it's kind of a titanic move in bond yield terms and the fed has promised to get more aggressive about hiking interest rates and shrinking its balance sheet to curb inflation this means we're going to have less money floating around and it's going to cost more maybe a lot more so Market's not too happy today. It was doing very well the past couple of weeks, though, under a similar circumstance. Where do you think we go from here? You know, honestly, I, I think um, that the that right now that uh, until the yields stop going up, the market is going to have a top a tough time. Um, one of the things that uh, Michael Darda from MKM pointed out last week was that with the yield rising as much as it has, the equity risk premium is actually still um, is getting smaller and smaller, even though stocks have fallen this year. Um, so with that 1.6% um, yield at the start of the year, um, even with stocks at over 21 times, um, you ended up with a higher equity risk premium than you do now with uh, yields at 2.8%, uh, but valuations on the S&P at 19.2 times earnings. Um, and that's just simple math. Um, and I think that as long as yields are rising and we don't have certainty on earnings and things like that, you're just going to have this downward pressure on stocks uh, for a while. Even though they they did rather well for about a month there. Yep. Um, and then the yield took off. Um, right. And I, th I right. think if you look at what happened, it was really the uh, um, the invasion put downward pressure on bond yields that 
made you know the equity risk premium look a little better then all of a sudden yields took off and that's a massive move um it's really hard for the market to adjust to that are there forecasts yet on the street about how high yields might go um you know there's some people that say this is it for now that uh on a technical perspective uh 2.75 ish uh in this area that we're in 2.75 to 2.8 might be it uh, but there are others that are talking to three uh three and a quarter in the short term um and it's just it's really hard to tell right now um and there's so much upward momentum to yields and it's hard to um you know it's there it's going to have to be something that happens that causes people to want to buy bonds again it might be just getting to a point where people say you know what that's pretty decent yield now or it could be something that happens that, uh, you know, in, in Ukraine or someplace else. Uh, but for now, you know, it could be something we're not even thinking about. But we need to have something that gets uh, tenure, the 10 year yield just yields generally to sort of find a place where they can sit and the market can then start to adjust. Right. And would you say that the bond market in some ways is doing the Fed's work for it? Um, it, it is. I, I think so. Um, you know, it's it's starting to to tighten um, the uh, it, it tighten monetary conditions, um, and partially because the Fed said it's going to do these things. Um, so, I mean, that's the, what the Fed works through. It works through the bond market, uh, both short term rates, but also because of QE with long term rates. Um, and one of the things to remember is that this latest move in yields and the latest downturn in the markets came when. Uh, Lael Brainerd last week said that uh, the Fed was going to need to start uh, start quantitative um, tightening, would need to let its balance right. sheet start to run off. And so I think all these things are just, uh, you know, the bond market, bond investors are trying to figure out where things are going. And then equity investors are taking their cue from the bond market. As always, as always. So speaking of bonds, the yield curve recently inverted, which is often a precursor to a recession. And there's been a lot of recession talk lately. An inversion means simply that bonds with shorter maturities are yielding more than bonds with longer maturities. Where does the yield curve stand right now? And should we be worried? I've heard it said that an inverted yield curve has predicted 10 of the past five recessions. Well, I think the yield curve has been a very good um, predictor of recessions. Um, it's one that I've I've always watched. It's just people people forget that the market is complicated, um, and you you can't just say, "Oh, look, the the two year rose higher than the ten year. It's time for the market to fall now." Um, it, it's it just doesn't work that way. Um, one of the things that we have to remember is that there's more than one yield curve, and we've heard people talking about like five thirties. You know what? I don't care. Um, 1030s, I don't care. Um, one that really does work well is a, a three-month tenure, and that's still very steep. And even the two-year tenure has now steepened again so that you actually have, um, I believe it's, it's close to um, 27, 28 basis points um, between uh, the yields now with the tenure over the two-year. Um, so does it matter how long the curve stays inverted? It does. There have been studies... There, there have been studies to show that you need like a 30 days below the curve for it to send a meaningful signal. The mm -hmm. other thing that we've seen is that this often happens, that you get a, a, a initial inversion, you see the curve uninvert, it uh, the, the, you know steepens a bit, and then when it falls below again, when it inverts the second time, that's when you really need to start worrying. And what we know from watching the 2's 10 curve is that you actually do have time. Sometimes it could be, you know, uh, three to six months, but it can also be something like 12 to 18 months to two years before the recession comes. Um, and so it's not the perfect timing device. What it does tell you is that 
the economy is in a position where something could happen that would knock the market into the recession. We just don't quite know what it is yet, though. Right now, we might have an idea. You know, we, we do know that there are problems um, that are coming up because of inflation, because of the war and things like that. But it could be something something else completely, which is what happened with COVID. I was just thinking about that. No one saw that that beast coming. No, nope. and everyone thought the the Fed had engineered this soft landing after uh, the curve inverted back at in, um, in 2019, and yet we still got that uh, recession in 2020. That soft landing, a mythical beast. So, want to move on to talk about the man of the hour, and I guess you would call him the man of every hour these days. I'm referring to Elon Musk. He's the CEO of Tesla, SpaceX, and the Boring Company. And he almost became a board member of Twitter after buying 9% of the social media company's stock. We should also note he's run afoul of the SEC on more than one occasion. He has a lot of controversial opinions. But let's focus on Twitter, since that's the news. What is Musk's agenda for Twitter, to the extent that we know? And do you what do you make of the, his about face on joining the board? He was on it. Now he's not on it. What do you I, think? I mean, anything I can really say on this is speculative. Um, it, it's you know, we have we, we have reporters busily trying to figure this all out right now. What I will say is this: Musk um, paints himself as a uh, you know a, a free speech absolutist that you should be able to uh, you know pretty much say whatever you want. Um, and I think he benefits when Twitter is that way. Um, you know, he's really very good at using it as a platform um, to get his message out there. One of the things that Al Root, our Twitter, our uh, Tesla reporter, um, t- says all the time is that they really don't have a PR department. Um, you, you try, you want to reach out to Tesla for a comment, and really, you just have to um, tweet at uh, Elon Musk ah. and hope you get a reply. Um, you know, Twitter is 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 how he gets his message out. So I think there's part of him that looks at it and thinks, you know, I need to I need to maintain this. Um, I don't want to be banned from from Twitter if I say something wrong. And he says some things that are, um, let's just say, controversial. Um, right. And I think he also probably does see a business opportunity there. I mean, this is a company that we all know, and Barron's has written about this a lot. Has a, a lot of users, has a pretty good amount of revenue, but has not been very good at figuring out how to be turn a really big profit with it. Um, and you know, Musk might have ideas. I actually, Musk does have ideas on how to do that. Um, and one of them involves, uh, meaning uh, I think involves policing free if speech less than it does now. Um, but so I think that is, I think, probably a big part of his agenda that he it. it it aligns with his philosophy, but I suspect that he also sees an opportunity to make money because, I mean, he's very good at that. It's interesting because in many ways, there's no reason that Twitter shouldn't be making more money. Yep. But somebody yep. hasn't found the key to unlock that potentially yet. No, they haven't yet. But what I find interesting is that if you look at the stocks today, um, Twitter started this morning down quite a bit. I believe it was down 5% in very early trading uh, this morning uh, in pre-market. It's up 0.5% right now. So, you know, it seems like the the market is um, somehow taking this as, okay, you know, we can, it's not horrible news, at least not yet. Um, It might be that it just doesn't know what to do with that news. Tesla, on the other hand, is down, though I don't think it has anything to do with Musk. It was, um, there were, um, China delivery numbers that came out for 
um, Tesla and for Neo and the numbers were, uh, I don't want to say they were soft because they grew, but uh, you know, there, there are issues over in China with COVID and other things. And that might be what's weighing on Tesla stock. But you know, with this market, it's, you know, you have to start, you have to weigh all these things. With Twitter, he may not be on the board, but he owns almost 10% of the company. So surely he's going to find a way to make his views heard. Absolutely. And that may be what the market is finally waking up to. So one more question, then I want to talk about corporate earnings. But you wrote a very good piece in the Trader column this weekend on defense stocks. You were positive on them. You singled out general dynamics. Investors haven't paid much attention to defense stocks, really, until Russia's attack on Ukraine. And suddenly, we see the defense spending is rising throughout the Western world. So is there value left in defense stocks and where do you see it? Um, I, I do think there there is. I mean, it, it was interesting that the market had a very knee-jerk reaction to the invasion. Um, defense stocks just popped um, and then and then they stopped. Part of that was that uh, the U.S. budget, the initial uh, defense budget, was, it was viewed as kind of disappointing. There were some programs that weren't funded as much, but everything I've read on it um, seems to assume that it's going to end up being bigger than uh, than it was initially proposed. Um, the other thing that's going on is that uh, it, it looks like Europe is going to start uh, spending. And if you do start seeing um, the European countries that have not wanted to meet their NATO goals, goals start to meet their goals, that's a lot more money coming into the defense sector. Um, and so it, the, the problem is that none of this is coming into current earnings levels. Um, thought one of the interesting things was looking at the numbers and seeing that Earnings uh, estimates have not been revised higher on the Russia war, but that's partially because they're not, it's not going to impact first quarter earnings or second quarter earnings. It's going to be further out. But I do think there's a long-term opportunity here. Um, one of the things that I liked about General Dynamics is that they have these uh, they have the Gulfstream business, and that's one that uh, can perhaps uh, you know provide a, a boost while you wait for the spending to come through. Um, the stock itself was also looking like it, uh, on a technical basis, was looking pretty interesting as well. Um, it was approaching levels that uh, it had gotten to before and had never really been able to break. And it's looking like it may try to uh, test those levels. The one thing I should say is that false breakouts have been really painful this year. There have been a number of stocks that looked like they were going to break out on their charts got a little bit above their previous highs, fell back, and then they just got clobbered. And so it's something that I'm going to be paying a lot of attention to in regards to uh, general dynamics. Mm -hmm. If you weren't doing a column or a story on false breakouts, yep. showing off some of your technical expertise. I like that. So let's move on to first quarter earnings. Before we do, I want to remind listeners, we'll take questions at the end of the call. We have a bunch already. We could always take more. So this week marks the start of first quarter earnings reports. We're going to hear from the big banks and a couple of other notable companies. Let's start with the big picture view. What are analysts forecasting for the quarter for the S&P 500? Well, they're, they're uh, expecting only a 4.7% uh, earnings growth. Um, part of that, though, is um, a reflection of uh, banks um, that are seeing a massive amount of um uh, of profit, uh, their profits are dropping a lot um, because you have to remember last year they had these gigantic um, loan loss uh, reserve releases. They've set aside a lot of money to cover loan losses in 2020. Those never materialized. So they got to release all this money. And so they took a hit for it in 2020. 
20. They got to take it back in 2021. And now that's all out of the numbers. And so, uh, but they still have to beat last year's compares. And so you're getting a big drop there. Um, and so, but without, you take out the banks and you get a number that's closer to, uh, <coughs> excuse me, closer to maybe um, 14%. Um, according to Credit Suisse, um, or actually, sorry, uh, you get some, yeah, you get something closer to fourteen percent. Yeah, fourteen percent in earnings per share. You're talking about. That's right. And then they also think that ultimately, even with banks, you're going to get beats. That it's going to be closer to nine to eleven percent earnings growth uh, this quarter, which would be good. I mean, that those are those are better than solid numbers. Um, the one thing that they are we are seeing in the numbers though is that uh, you know there is margin contraction. That uh, sales, um, either way you really look at it, um, you know, sales are probably going to grow um, more than earnings um, on the final S and P EPS numbers. And that just indicates that margins are starting to get squeezed. Um, and that's the thing that the, the market really has already been worried a lot about. Um, the good news on that is that uh, the market has fallen a lot and a lot of stocks have dropped even more. Um, and so we might be starting to think about uh, what's priced into the stocks already. Well, earnings beats in a market like that will certainly get a good reaction. Yes. So let's start with the big banks. We'll start with J.P. Morgan Chase and Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. What's ahead for them? Well, here it's just, you know, we know that there are going to be uh, issues. Um, we know that there is going to be this loan loss uh, reserve uh, issue. Um, are they going to have to, are they going to lose money because of Russia? Are they going to have to put money aside because of the, uh, because of Russia? We also know that trading revenue is going to drop. Trading revenue had been incredible. It's probably not going to be nearly as good um, because of that. And that's going to impact all the banks, um, JP Morgan, it'll impact Goldman, it'll impact Morgan Stanley. Um, because these numbers are just, uh, you know, these, these businesses are so important to them. And so even the people who are optimistic, um, about them, like I was reading uh, Susan Katsky over Credit Suisse, you know, she has a $2.65 uh, $2 a share uh, earning estimate for JP Morgan, and that's below consensus, even though I think she likes the stock. Um, and her, her comment was interesting. She calls estimate risk relatively high for the quarter. And it is tied to that trading revenue issue and these loan losses tied to Russia. It makes it very hard to predict these numbers. Um, and you're going to see some of this come through in both Morgan Stanley and Goldman as well when they report later in the week. And um, the, the question for all of them is going to be, have they dropped enough to re reflect this? Um, and so you look at JP Morgan during the last three months, it's dropped 20%. Um, Goldman, uh, during the last three months is down 19%. Morgan's down, uh, sorry, Morgan Stanley is down 19%. So the market has anticipated the market knows that these numbers aren't going to be bad, aren't going to be good. The question becomes, um, are we going to, are, are the numbers that come in going to be good enough that you can get a bounce off of them, which is what, uh, people like a uh, Wells Fargo, uh, strategist, Chris Harvey has been predicted last week. Um, or is there something going on here that the market hasn't priced in, um, which I think would be interesting because I think there are people who are starting to think, yeah, it's not going to be as bad as it looks and these stocks can get a pop. I feel a little badly for the banks because they are always supposed to be about to do better. Either they'll benefit from rising interest rates or they'll benefit from more loan activity as the economy strengthens. And yet the stocks just can't seem to get a sustained bid. 
no, it's it's really kind of depressing um, yes. because they uh, they really do. Um, you know, we, we were told that, oh, all we need to have happen is a Fed to start raising rates. The yield curve could steepen and they'll make more money and that'll be great. And yet, you know, we're seeing um, rather than we had a very short period of curve steepening, the banks did well. And now the uh, yield curve is has flattened, has even inverted. And none of that's good for banks and their future yeah. profits. Do you have a favorite in the sector? Just the same? Well, I think um, the two that we really want to take a look at, I, when I get into these kind of markets that are messy, and I know the numbers are going to be messy, I like looking at banks that can um, that, that have something else going for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in, that, in, in this case, we have two, right? We have uh, Wells Fargo and Citigroup, which are both these really these banks that have been kind of broken compared to the others and are trying to fix themselves. Um, and, and I think those are the, are the two I'd really be paying attention to. What's interesting is Wells Fargo, they have actually done quite well. They've fallen less than the other banks. They're only down 11% during the last three months. Uh, and they're up 20% over the last year. And this is really on a lot of optimism that they can start uh, getting out from under this cloud that they've been under for so long. They still need the Fed to remove the asset cap on them. I mean, the stock really can't get going until that happens. And there's no sign that it will. But they're starting to fix their businesses. And the businesses they do have are starting to do a lot better. Better, And you're seeing, uh, you know, this is from RBC's Gerard Cassidy. You know, they they just think that there is going to be higher net interest margins, Um and that the uh, the the um, that they're going to do well for mortgage servicing rights and things like that. And so I think as long as Wells Fargo continues to show that it is making progress, that stock will probably outperform others. Um, the other one that uh, we have to think about is Citigroup has a new CEO. It's exiting all these foreign businesses. That's made things very messy. Um, I think people, um, when you listen to Wall Street's analyst community, they think that the the stock is on the right track, um, but that because of this messiness, especially now you have Russia thrown in there, they're going to have probably $1.5 billion charge because of that. Their expenses are going to be high. Um, it's been called, this is from Wells Fargo analyst Mike Mayo, he called it another cleanup year. For, for city. When um, will they stop having cleanup years? That, that, is a, that is the thing. But I think for long-term investors, and this is what Mayo points out, is that, you know, they are, um, they're, 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 they are starting to make the right choices. And you can see what the strategy is. And the stock is so cheap right now. It's trading at, I think, 0.7 times tangible book value, um, which is just craziness. I mean, it is so cheap for We're a giving bit. it away. Yeah. And so if you have time and patience and you're willing to sit through a lot of this macro headaches, um, Citigroup could be an interesting one to look at as well. All right. In the interest of time, I want to go through the next two fairly quickly. One is Bed Bath & Beyond, the housewares retailer, the former meme stock. The other one is Delta Airlines coming back from the dead of 2020. So let's talk quickly about Bed Bath. What's the outlook? I mean, Bed Bath, it, their earnings are could be great. It's going to have four cents as expected per share. Uh, and that'd be down from forty cents. Um, we, they have the act uh, Ryan Cohn in there now as an activist trying to turn it around. But there's also, you know, everyone talks about um, Bye Bye Baby, the baby business there, yeah. and how that's going to supposed to be worth so much more, and you can spin that off. But it might not be. Um, if you believe some of the analyst chatter out there, I mean, in some ways, it's like a Citigroup where it has these problems, is trying to fix itself. But it sort of got a it's it's up uh, 41 percent over the past three months because of Cohen's presence. 
Um, and you have to wonder, is the, uh, it, it did it, did the gains for fixing his problems, even if it does fix the problems, did they get pulled forward? And I think that's what I'd have to, I'd want to be thinking about as we go into the earnings release. Okay. And what about Delta? Um, Delta is going to be interesting. Um, as Jack Howe pointed out in his column, it has its own oil refinery. So it probably will have less of an oil related, uh, you know, uh, jet fuel price related hit than other airlines. But we are still going to be waiting to see what is happening with travel. Are people willing, are people getting back on flights? Is inflation hurting, um, hurting the, the, their willingness to get on planes uh, to buy tickets? And is Delta going to be able to offset rising prices by raising by raising their own ticket prices? Um, there's there's a lot going on there. Um, and uh, so and, and the other thing that's going on, though, is that uh, um, one of the things that Cowan is listening for is what's going to happen with the mandatory mask mandate. Um, um, and uh, will it be eliminated on April 18th or is it going to be extended again? And that can also impact future um, the willingness to fly, um, right. I think, both positive or negative. So there's going to be a lot there. People, I think, are listening more for the outlook um, than the number itself because there's going to be a loss of $1.26 a share. That's better than uh, the loss of $3.55 uh, the previous year. Um, but people want to know, when is this going to get back to something that resembles normal? Right. Well, partly depends on business travel and when that goes back to normal is a very big question. Very much so. And and that might never go back to normal. Right. Right. Something to watch for. So let's get to some questions and we can get back to some of the other topics that we were interested in. Um, Lee had a couple of questions here. I'm going to pick one of them. He says, Ben, he remembers that you have a background as a trader. So if an investor has a lot of cash now, he asks, what is the most important thing you should look for to signal that it's time to deploy some of that cash in the market again? Ooh, that's a toughie. I know. Um, that's why I asked it. <laughs> um, you know, I, I look at, <coughs> excuse me. Um, one of the things I want to do is find stocks that uh, have, I'm, I'm looking for stocks that have found uh in terms of, I want to identify stocks that I like fundamentally, but I also like to think a lot about the technical entry points. Um, is it a stock that has pulled back and has found a support level? That might be a time to start thinking about nibbling on it. Um, or is it still in free fall? If it's still in free fall, you can like the stock, uh, you know, as much as you want, but oftentimes they keep dropping. Um, and I'd, I'd want to wait for a better technical position. And I think when you do get into a messy tape, that's the kind of thing that you want to do. You're looking for stocks that you really like fundamentally um, that are at that seem to have found areas where maybe they have stopped falling and could be worth buying, or at least, you know, you, you, they, that the odds are in, in your favor that that is the case. Because um, it, it, it's hard in this market. I mean, trying to, it's when the, everything is going up, the the cost of being wrong is low, is usually lower because stocks can get through some of the bad news. Um, but in, in a market that may or may not be a bear market, it's a lot harder. Um, and and so I think you just have to be careful with timing your exits and entries and make sure you really like those stocks. Fair point. So Joseph asks a question concerning sector rotation. What do you do now? He notes that many people have lost 15% or more in this market because of sector rotation. Do you rotate into other sectors? Do you come up with a different strategy? What would you say to that? 
Um, I, I find sector rotation really hard. Um, you know, it's and it, it often happens so quickly um, that you know by the time you you realize that. Uh, the, the, let me put it this way: the pros have a hard time catching it. So by the time that we at home realize that it's time, we might be too late. Um, so one one thing I I like to think about is what kind of stocks do I want to own. Um, you know, if if, uh, if I'm looking at energy stocks um, uh, after this kind of run, do I want to own stocks that are more levered to higher oil prices or do I want to own higher quality ones? I think higher quality would be the place I want to be. And I think right now quality is probably a good place to be across sectors. Um, you know, we probably don't. You, you look at things like um, like technology, the really expensive tech stocks are the ones that have gotten hit hardest and they might still have room on the downside. Um, and so I'm looking for, again, high quality stocks, stocks that have profits, stocks that have margins that are, are solid, um, that uh, are, are trading cheaper than they have been. Uh, that's where I'd want to look. So I think it's more important to look at the, the types of stocks um, on their, you know, in terms of their fundamentals or what they call factors, you know, quality versus high quality versus low quality Um you know, uh, if you want to look at, uh, you know, maybe you look at um, value within tech rather than growth, that kind of thing um, in order to, to, to position and then try not to worry as much about uh, um, the sector rotation part of it. That's interesting. So you're really recommending factor rotation as opposed to sector rotation. Yeah, but even that's been hard. You, you, we, yeah. did, we, we did see um, like, uh, hi, um, sorry, high beta stocks. You know, when we had the the rally in the market there, it, it was high beta that led it forward and low beta. So like the lower stocks with lower volatility relative to the market didn't do nearly as well. Um, but now you get this twist again. Um, the high volatility stocks are falling and the low, low volatility is doing better. Um, but it's more about getting the types of companies and the types of factors that you want um, rather than, I think, chasing the sectors. That makes sense to me. So you mentioned energy. Bruce had a question. Are traditional energy stocks still investable at this point? Um, I think they are. I, I think um, what we're going to see now is that they did have a big run up and I think there needs to be a period of consolidation. Um, but it, it, it's one of these areas where people just haven't wanted to invest there in a very, very long time. Um, you know, they were just they were so hated. They become such a tiny part of the market that even after a big rally like this, um, you could still see them working um, or at least some of them working because um, there are some that are going to make a lot of money if oil prices, you know, they don't need to have oil prices go to 130 to be very profitable. They're going to do just fine with oil at 95, at 90, even, you know, as long as it stays above 80, um, they're going to do um, quite well. Um, and so I think that's, again, what I'd be looking for is like, Identify the companies that you're comfortable earning because they're going to be returning cash to shareholders that, uh, you know, they paid, they're paying a dividend, they're buying back stock, or they're doing those things that uh, are going to pay you to really sit through some likely volatility in the, in the weeks and months ahead. Okay, we have a question from Gabriel. Could you comment on the shipping industry and shipping stocks? It seems as though we have a hot economy, but the share prices are all over the place. Do you have any insights there? I think it's a good observation. Um, it is a good observation. And transports have been hit extremely hard recently. Um, the uh, Dow Transports Index, uh, I think, actually entered a bear market last week. Um, and uh, the concern is, there's many concerns. One is with shipping stocks is that uh, with China's economy um, uh, perhaps slowing because of COVID and other things, that maybe there won't be as much to ship. Um, there are fears about the, a U.S. Re recession. Um, 
that perhaps is reflected in some of these stocks so that even though the numbers are strong now, are they going to um, get, uh, are they going to start to slow? And then people are going to have to bring down their earnings estimates. Because a lot of things, I mean, things almost always go back to earnings and those estimates. And Wall Street has to bring down the estimates, the stock will come down with it usually. Um, and so I think that's a lot of what's happening here is trying to figure out, um, and, and it goes back to the beginning of, of COVID, how much of the demand and the up, the, the, the shipping, uh, and in this case, the shipping demand is, was simply because COVID messed things up and how much is going to, to last. And are we going to get um, demand falling off just as shipping, um, shipping volumes are going to be ready? You're going to start having enough shipping to handle it all. Um, and these are all the questions that are being wrestled with right now, and not just in shipping, but across the board. I'm glad he asked the question because it gave us a chance to look at things in a more broad way. So two more topics, Ben, and then then we'll sign off for today. One is stock splits. Shopify said Monday it's planning to split its stock 10 for 1, although the CEO's family is going to retain about 40%, I think, of the voting stock. Amazon, Alphabet, and Tesla are all planning stock splits as well. Technically, an investor is no better off because a stock split doesn't change the value of the stock. It just slices it into smaller parcels, so to speak. But investors seem to like stock splits. So why is this? I mean, it's it's kind of amusing because there's actually a point where nobody wanted to. I think I wrote a column back in 2014, 2015, at a time where nobody wanted to split their stocks. And um, there are actually analysts saying, like, the price of a stock should not matter, right? It's the price relative to the earnings uh, or the price relative to something else. But people are actually judging stocks based not on their valuation, but on the price themselves, um, and which is very odd. Um, and, and so markets do weird things. I think with the, um, with the, the stock splits now, it is a signaling kind of thing that the, the companies are saying, hey, you know, we feel pretty good about our businesses um, is, I think, one of the reasons that uh, companies like to do this. Um, with It's one reason people like to watch, you know, dividends, um, because when companies raise dividends, it's usually signaling that we think that things are going to be OK. Otherwise, we wouldn't be raising the dividend. Um, and so I think that's a big part of it, um, because, you know, now there's really no need um to, you know, it used to be that you had to buy a full share of a stock. And so having a $1,500 stock price made it hard for people to buy shares, um, especially when you had, were expected to buy a lot of 100. Um, right. Now that doesn't matter. You can buy fractional shares. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think that more than anything is just that uh, the that they're saying, um, you know, hey, we think business is okay and we want you to to pay attention to us because um, that's, uh, you know, otherwise they probably wouldn't be doing that either because the risk of a stock split is your stock, uh, you know, your stock drops 50% and you've, you're now a $50 stock instead of a $100 stock. Right. It's an interesting phenomenon. You have lots of big successful companies now jumping on the bandwagon. I want to close with a look at inflation. We have the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, coming out tomorrow. It's been running at 40-year highs. What is Wall Street expecting from tomorrow's report? That will be, I guess, March CPI. Yeah, um, they are expecting it to be high, um, even higher than it was in the previous reports. Oh, uh, great. Yeah, I mean, it is it is just in incredible how high these numbers are. Um, but there's also an expectation that they are starting to peak. 
um, you know, that uh, all these numbers are based on comparisons. Um, and so, you know, when the comparisons start to get harder, um, it, it's, it gets harder for them to, to keep going up. And we're going to start seeing these tough compares. Um, and so the, the question will be not so much, uh, is it going to go to like, it's expected to be 8.4% year over year. Is it going to go to 10? Most people don't think so. Um, they're, they're trying to figure out where it's going to bottom. Um, and, and the range is really wide. There are people who think, uh, that inflation can get back to a 2%, um, or even lower, um, in a year's time, but that's going to be because of a recession. Um, but there are other people that think it's going to settle more into a range of four to five percent, which is still too high. Um, and, and so I think that's uh, it's going to be one of those numbers where I think unless it is a blowout number one way or another, it's going to really be hard to draw much meaning from it. Um, other than, you know, to people will start poking in there and saying, OK, you know, housing uh, and, and rents are high. Those could be more sticky. And so they're going to look for what's sticky and what isn't. Um, but I think the real meaning is people are still want to figure out what's coming next. And this market has problems and inflation is definitely one of them. <laughs> that it is. <laughs> so we'll leave it there today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you to our listeners. We have a housing market call tomorrow on Barron's Live. We had some housing questions today. Come back tomorrow and ask them to the experts. Jacob Passy, Market Watch personal finance reporter and author of the Big Move column, will speak with Deputy Personal Finance Editor Leslie Albrecht about homeowners' most frequent questions and how to approach buying a home this spring. Sounds like a good call. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in. Stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.